All right, kids may go. Maybe someday. We'll get, we'll get, we'll get you afterward, Mia. We'll talk afterward. All right. uh, Tony and Peggy, good to have you guys back too, by the way. Really good to see you guys sitting there. Um, no, you guys were sick for a couple of weeks, so. Yeah, yeah. No, glad you, glad you guys are here. All right. Uh, so we've been in, uh, we were in the first four chapters of, of Matthew for like a, maybe a couple months, and now we've been in chapter five for like a year. Like, I don't know how long it's been. It's been a long time. Uh, we have definitely slowed down. There's a lot of stuff here um, in this chapter, obviously, um, and uh, it's big stuff. It's stuff that, that is definitely worth us listening uh, to carefully uh, and coming to a good understanding of, um, and we're going to close, uh, not the Sermon on the Mount today, but we're going to close chapter, what we call chapter five in our Bibles today, which have been the, um, you have heard it said, but I say statements. We're going to hit the last one of those today. There's been six of them. This is number six. And so open to Matthew chapter five. I better open to Matthew chapter five. Uh, 43 to the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Tax collectors always get their own category, right? You have sinners and then you have tax collectors, you know, like the, the worst kind of sinner. 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we have the final statement here, and I'm glad that he he left the easiest one for last. I mean, this is obviously uh, one that we're all um, really good at, right? Uh, loving Loving our enemy. Um, to hate is to have disdain for something or someone. Does anybody have any disdain for things or even people? And of course I have a lot, you know, I was thinking about some of the things that I, I hate. Um, broccoli is easily at the top of the list, right? Um, I probably shouldn't say anything, but like anything that Smells the same way going in as it does coming out. Ain't going into my mouth. Uh, when I walk into the house, my, my family loves broccoli. Uh, and it, it literally smells when I walk in like our septic tank is broke. And, uh, and I don't know why people like that. I don't know why people um, uh, do that. Uh, what I hate more than broccoli is passing lanes, like drivers in passing lanes, right? And this has, like, become a big one for me. Like, I don't know if we just, like, don't actually teach people Things in, in traffic school, like courtesy and thoughtfulness and laws, uh, you know, things like that. Um, but, but when you can, you're on a single lane and you've got a slow car holding up everybody, and then you get to a passing lane, and they move over and go 100 so that you cannot pass them, and then the passing lane ends and they go back down to 50. You know, like, like I don't get it, and it happens, like, all the time. I don't That's something I hate. Like, that's straight up, it's straight up satanic, honestly. Uh, it's just demonic. Um, and 
One of the other things that, uh, that, I, that I disdain um, are um, a lot of times pe- people who disdain me. Uh, people that oppose me, uh, people that are hostile towards me, people that are against me or against my family. Um, and this really is the definition of uh, enemy. <laughs> it's the, the opposition to, to be against. Uh, and, and once again, I, I would like to think that I've made strides uh, over the years uh, with this, that I do pretty well with this uh, sometimes as a Christian. Uh, but what I uh, do towards my enemies and what I truly think, feel, wish towards my enemies are often two different things. They're oftentimes two different things. And, and Jesus reminds us of this here. We start off in the text with that which we've uh, come to be accustomed to. You have heard it said, but I say, right, once again. So, so we know once more right off the bat that these guys were practicing believing something that Jesus has something to say about, right? Like there, there's a correction to be made here by God on something that they believed, uh, this time having to do with their hearts, thoughts, actions toward enemies. Verses 30, uh, 43, 44, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the first question is, where did they hear that? We've kind of been um, asking that question through each of these, like where did they get this thing that Jesus said that they had, had heard? And usually it's, it's a variation or form of something that they've heard out of their scriptures, our Old Testament scriptures, that was either embellished or uh, expounded on or, or changed or softened, right? Something that they kind of modified. Uh, where did they get this from? Do, do you guys, can you guys think of any verses that you know of in the Old Testament scriptures that says, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. I, I haven't read it. Uh, I tried to find it this week. Uh, I couldn't find it. Um, it's, it's not there. Um, I, I, I know where I get it because I've, I, I've oftentimes like lived by this saying, right? Uh, and I get it from my heart, um, you know, close to every day, right? Uh, I don't know where they got it directly from, same place probably. Um, They didn't get it directly from their Old Testament scriptures. It's simply not there. Love your neighbor as yourself is found multiple places, very present, especially in Leviticus chapter 19. Love your neighbor as yourself, but hate your enemy is not there with it. Now, it's widely believed that hating your enemy was simply um, an assumed development among the Jews because of how their scriptures do oftentimes speak of God hating evil. There's even a couple places where it talks about God hating the evil doer, such as Psalm chapter five, verses four and five, which says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. So like, well, there it is. Like since God hates evil doers, we can too. You know what I mean? Uh, Problem, uh, these people, the Jews included, never considered that they might fit into that description that God has. You know what I'm saying? Uh, It it could be assumed due to the constant language to to the Jewish mind um, of being the people of God and being surrounded by nations that were not the people of God, resulting in wars and struggle and bloodshed for centuries, that they could be justified in their hate towards those 
people. It would have been easy and natural for them to look at their history and the God-given commands at times and say, evil and evildoer equals enemy, right? Like, oh, how I hate them, you know? David would often let out this way if you're familiar with your Psalms. There's some stuff that's pretty hardcore that flew out of David's mouth in those moments, you know, in those caves, in those times of despair when he was running for his life from men who hated him. He said some pretty gnarly things about his enemies. But hatred, the hatred from us toward our enemies is never commanded by God. It's just something that we love to do. It's something that is natural to us. So Jesus here is, of course, informing them that they've heard wrong, they've assumed wrong, they've desired wrong in hating their enemies, and he's now going to give them a correct command from God concerning how they ought to look at their enemies. He's going to clear this up. And the way Jesus clears this up is by making the statement that he makes here, 44, 45, let me read again. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that... These two words are extremely important. So that, so, so here's the why. Here's why it's important to love our enemies. You may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So there's some clarity that goes on in this full statement for us. Jesus gives the command and then the why of the command, the necessity of it. And the necessity of it is that, first of all, one of the things that's implied here in the statement is that God loves his enemies. God loves his enemies. In other words, God loves haters. And and because God loves haters, we who claim to be his children, his offspring, are to do the same. Right? I mean, I I don't even know where to start with this. Right? I mean, when just thinking of myself in regards to this. Are, Are we good at this? How are you guys doing in your lives with this? And I think we could all probably go like sometimes like, yeah, I, I, I do pretty good with this sometimes. You know what I mean? And, and that's all God cares about is that I hit the mark once in a while, you know? Um, but uh, I, for me, it's like, can I just give myself an F now? You know what I mean? Um, when I'm really honest about what goes on in, in here uh, towards the people that I disdain. Um, and, and, I, and I think if the church is honest that they would, they would have to give themselves an F as well. And almost the 50 years that I've been on this earth, it's been long enough to know that the church, the people of God are not, in my opinion, very good at this. Um, there has not been a great case made uh, for us in this. Um, we, thus, we have sayings that exist like, I love Jesus, but I don't love his people. You ever heard that before? Um, everyone's just like, Crickets, yeah. That's actually a saying, a bumper sticker, I think, a, a T-shirt. I love Jesus. I just don't love his people, which, by the way, is a self-admission of guilt in loving your enemies. Um, we may have our, our moments. We may, again, hit the mark once in a while, hit one out of the park once in a while, showing love to our enemies. We may be moving in a direction, improving, brushing up our skills in this department. But for the most part, we've earned every bit of every time that we have been called hypocrites particularly in current times, in the social media age, right, where our political convictions have trumped, pun intended, our Christian marks, characteristics. We're so eagerly, so many times loud and proud to announce with great self-righteousness to the world behind our keyboards, I don't even know if we have keyboards anymore, behind our cell phones, how stupid and how disgusting and how ignorant and how appalling and how mindless people are who don't think like we do. 
That's not love. For people that don't act like we do, think like we do, vote like we do. And, and I don't know if it's ever worked out for you guys in leading someone to, to Jesus that way, but like insulting my enemies has, has like yet to bear fruit for me. It's yet to bear fruit for me. Like I haven't seen it as like a, as like a, a meaningful tactic, like an effectual one. You know, speaking at them, speaking over them, speaking down to them with hate or disdain has yet to like net me a fish. I haven't caught nothing that way. And, and, and yet for some reason we think this is our best strategy, you know, to, this is our best approach. I think it's far too easy for us to think, well, I'm supposed to be a truth teller for Jesus, right? Like, I think we can do this. I'm a truth teller for Jesus. So, so we use that to justify our actions in being jerks for Jesus. And, and then we experience the negative response back, right? The hate back as a result of us being jerks for Jesus. And we go, oh, oh, the persecution. Jesus said this would happen. Because we're jerks. Right? He said they'd persecute me following him. Not, not like that he didn't. Not like that he didn't. Let me, let me read you this. Um, I'm sure you know it. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want to. I'm going to uh, hit 1 Corinthians 13 real quick. Check this out. You guys all know this text, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I, like, I don't know if you know what, like, a, a cymbal that doesn't know how to be played properly sounds like, but it's not a, it's not a good noise. I grew up as a drummer. I've been a drummer all my life, right? I've played in a lot of worship bands and concerts, and one of the things that's like, that always happens after a church service or a concert is that someone's child will come up and get on my kit and grab a stick. And I don't know why they love this one, but they'll just start crashing a cymbal over and over again. And it just makes you want to like, <laughs> like it's not a joyful noise. There's nothing pleasant about it. It's horrible. And, and like Paul is saying to the church here, that's what you sound like when you go out and you try to do God things without God love. That's what you sound like. That's how bad it is. <clears throat> he goes on to say, if I have prophetic powers. So now we're talking about like these amazing, like miraculous, supernatural marks, right? That a Christian has and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains, I can do awesome things. I can make rad things happen uh, for God, but I have not love. I am nothing. I'm nothing. None of it counts. There is no value. If I give away all that I have, it should look like love, right? And I deliver up my body to be burned, martyrdom, but have not love, I gain nothing. I mean, do we get the idea of what makes the difference, of what matters most in the people of God to the enemy? It is love. It is love that has value. It is love that is effectual. It is love in which Christ won, bought, purchased the world. It is love. We don't have to guess what it looks like, really, uh, in this text. 
of what's being expected of us, of what it looks like to love our enemies, because Jesus lays out here what it looks like to love our enemies, and he uses the way that God does it, as uh, the Father does it, as an example. Jesus gives us that example here in verse 45b, basically the second half of it. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, God, even though these are his enemies, quote unquote, continues to dispense that which is life-giving to them. Sun and rain. Things which are life-giving to them. That which is necessary for life, for breath, for blessing, for enjoyment, for prosperity, for need, for existence. He gives this to both, those who are his and those who are against him. He dispenses it to both, the child and the enemy. It always blows my mind when I think about this, and I think about it all the time, that God actually does this. Have you ever thought about this? I, can, I think about people that are God-haters, that are, that are actually openly opposed to God, to the things of God, to the people of God, and they're loud about it, and they're proud about it, and they're bold about it, and they're confident about it, and that God allows them to like suck air every day absolutely blows my mind. Like it absolutely blows my mind. And not only do they breathe and get up in the morning, a lot of these people enjoy laughter, friendship, companionship, earthly blessings. Food tastes good to them. You know what I'm saying? They have children and their children have children and they enjoy it all. It's all a blessing to them. And I sit there and I scratch my head and I go, how in the world, God, how in the world could you allow this to happen? It looks like such an injustice, doesn't it? Such an injustice. But he does. This is what Jesus is informing us of here. That God gives all good things freely to all people. Because that is what love looks like in its full, pure, sincere, true state, right? And this is also why you and I fail at it. It's because we do not currently live in that state. We live in a different one. We have a different kind of love that's going on inside of us. What we call this, what Jesus is saying here, the sun on both, the rain on both, um, the, basically, the, the biblical phrase for it is common grace or common love. God holds, um, activates, dispenses what is called a common grace to everybody because everybody comes from him. They're all his. And God is full of grace in his very nature. And so he dispenses grace. He dispenses love to all kinds of people. But then there is this different kind of love that we start seeing as we move through our Bible that's called determinate grace, determinate love. And this one is for specific purposes with specific people. And this is where the difference is. But I think a lot of times if we, if we, it, it, we can just look at it and go, oh, God just loves some and hate others. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The, God, uh, the Bible teaches, including right here in this verse, that God loves everybody. He loves haters. 
He loves everybody. There's two serious problems that you and I have to have with what Jesus is saying here in these two verses. One is love your enemies. Okay. Uh, I don't know about you guys. That's a problem for me. And like I said, there's times when I kind of get down with it or get by with it or, or maybe do something that looks like a, a reasonable facsimile of what it might look like for Jesus to love an enemy, uh, but, but not a lot. Like when I'm actually looking at what's going on in here, what's making me tick with enemies, like I'm not, I'm not, I don't do well with this. And so lo- loving your enemies is, is, is one problem because we really don't, not fully. And number two, the other problem with what Jesus is saying here are the words, so that. So that, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So, so like if we're truly honest about uh, how we do with the first one, um, it condemns us with the second one. It condemns us with the second one. It will deny us access into the family if we do not love our enemies, according to what Jesus is saying. He's worded it in a way that makes it sound as if succeeding in the first one is a prerequisite for enjoying the second one. In in, in other words, in order to be considered by God a child of God, we must first love our enemies. After all, that's what children do, right? That's what children do. We're we're chips off the old block. That's the old saying. The chip off the old block, uh, apple doesn't fall far from the tree right? All those good things. There's, there's DNA, there are genes, biological makeup, residue, resemblance, behaviors, characteristics, right? All a result of who we're from. That's passed down as a result of who we belong to, who we ascended from. And Jesus is saying, if you in fact belong to God, you will in fact do that which he does. You will do what he does. In this case, you will love your enemies. And you know what? These guys didn't. And neither do we. Fully. Well, wait a second, pastor. Like, I love these people over here. And uh, they're pretty annoying. You know what I mean? Like, like my mom, not my actual mom, but I, I hear people do this. Like my, like, my mom's kind of annoying. She's hard to be around. Like, she's super difficult to deal with. Like, I love her. Right? My, my in-laws... Uh, has nothing to do with what Jordan shared today, <laughs> but like we'll do this with in-laws a lot, right? Uh, where it's like, well, they're, they're in-laws, you know what I mean? They're super difficult to deal with, but I strive with them. I do good things for them, you know what I mean? I love them. Friends, people I do life with, people I spend the most time, you know, with, like they've all got some serious issues, like they count, right? I still like strive with them, right? That's got to be worth something. And then, and then we have this thing here in verses 46 and, and 47, right? That Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And, and if you greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And so like, there's kind of like three parts to this that I had to walk, that I walked away from with my brain uh, in this saying, uh, kind of three main points. Number one, uh, God loves haters. Number two, because God loves haters, the children of God will love haters. And then number three, only loving the lovable doesn't count. (laughs) Like that one's completely out of, like only loving the lovable doesn't count. That's basically what's being said in 46 and 47. Why? Because there's nothing special about it. (laughs) There's nothing special about it. It's not sacrificial. It's not selfless. It's natural. It's completely natural. It's expected. It's doable. 
See, see again, the, the perfect law of God is not a challenge because it asks things of us that in our sinfulness is doable. It's, it's a challenge because it's requiring things from us that are, due to our sinfulness, undoable. Like, that's the point. That's the problem. See, our, our, our love due to being fallen and broken is broken too. Do you realize that? Like, love comes from God. We all know that, right? If it, if it wasn't for God installing love in us, creating that in us, like, we wouldn't have it. But because of the fall, it's broken. It doesn't always work right, right? So, so our, our love has really become very self-absorbed at its root, like self-concerned, self-aware, ultimately self-serving our love. God's is not. We're, we're creatures that love ourselves more than anyone or anything else, and because of that, we will always base our love, whether it's on someone or something, according to what it ultimately does for us. Well, pastor, that's not true. Like, like I like things all, all the time that don't even, that can't talk back or act back, like music, you know what I mean? You love the music you love because it does something for you when you hear it. That's why you love it. There's music I hate. Because it was what it does, doesn't do for me when I hear it, right? You can be like, well, I got a grandchild that doesn't walk. He doesn't talk like he can't do anything right now. And I love him more than the world. Exactly. He, that's what he does for you because he came from you. There's something there that makes it a special object that's ultimately tied back to you. And so there's this love that you have, right? It has everything to do with how it makes it us feel, what it gives to us, what it does for us. It's emotion-driven, or our emotions are broken, corrupt, bent towards ourselves, but God's aren't. Jesus is informing us that a true, pure, godly love is not dictated by feeling, emotion, circumstance, self, but truth and righteousness, regardless of what we get, regardless of what we feel, regardless of what we experience back. This is 1 Corinthians 13, if we were to continue going through it, 4 through 7. You guys all know that, right? When you got married, some pastor went through that section with you. Love is all these things. It's quite a list. How many of you pull that off regularly, continually, all the time, fully? I don't. You know who does? God. God does. That's what his love looks like. That's what his love looks like when you read that list. A pure and a true love is not based upon conditions, but transcends conditions. And, and this is why you and I stumble and we fall and we fail at this command, love your enemy. Because not only is there nothing in it for us in loving our enemy, but because they are actually even against us. They're actually harming us, taking from us, denying us of that which we want most. How do you love something like that? Like, how do you love something like that? Just like the previous indictments in this chapter, we can attempt to judge ourselves based upon our action or inaction in an attempt to identify our, our victories in this. And as I reflected on this this week, there was one instance that like stood out to me um, where I had thought that I had done particularly well uh, in regards to like loving my hater. Um, and by the way, 
like I, I believe like the only thing worse than trying to love your enemy is when your enemy is like your next door neighbor. Your enemy is your neighbor, like um, literally. And we've had that happen twice. Any of you ever had like the neighbor from hell? Like I'm, I'm sure everybody has. We've lived in two places. We've bought two houses in our lifetime and we had one. God put one right next door to us in each place. And it's like, what's up? Like, what are you doing? You know, is this a joke or... You know, the first one that we had was a dude named Dave Wilson, um, and he ended up getting saved. This is a whole story for another day. This dude uh, was a demon, and he ended up getting saved, but not before I wished his demise, like week after week, right? And, and then there was Andy and Jen, and, uh, and this one's more, more recent, so when we planted the door like 11 years ago, the summer of uh, 2011, this young couple from California bought the house immediately next to us, right? And they were not married. They were just shacked up. They had been together for a long time. They lived like they were married, acted like they were married, and they, they bought this place and they moved in. And I was like super like pumped up and hyped up missionally at that time for my neighbors and for my community because we're going to plant this church. And so I'm like, I'm like thinking of these things. I'm like marinating on texts like this, like at this point in my life. And I'm just looking for ways to like love my enemy and like dispense Jesus. You know what I mean? And here comes Andy and Jen and the house was an absolute disaster when they uh, bought it. So what they were doing is he would work all week. They would work all week down in California where they lived. And then they would drive up on Friday nights and get there at like midnight and work tirelessly all weekend on the house doing the repairs and then drive back down Sunday night and go to work. And they did this for months. And so I'm like, okay, how can we help them? So we, we started like making them meals or uh, taking them meals over or inviting them over for dinner. Um, in the wintertime, like I'd go over, I knew if it was like Friday, I'd go over and like plow his driveway so that the dude could actually like get into his house. Like we were trying to look for all these ways to just go out of our way uh, to love these people and to be sacrificial. And you know what happened? The more that we did it, the more they started to hate us. They knew we were Christians at this point. We had formed this relationship. And the more good works, the more loving kindness that we would like dispense to them, um, it, it, it like backfired on us. Because I, I thought from doing that, that we were going to win them to like Jesus. And instead what happened is we started like making them angry at our kindness and our love. And I started, I was like, Lord, what's up with this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not supposed to work this way. Like, I'm doing everything. I'm loving them well. You know what I mean? And there was one day where I look over out the corner of my eye, and, and Andy's coming over, and he's, he's, got, he's got smoke coming out of his nose. Like, this dude is off the chain, angry at something, and he's coming at me. And I'm like, okay, well, this is it. This is what it's all come to. You know what I mean? One of us is going to the hospital or to jail today, you know? <laughs> the way this dude's coming up and he comes over and he gets up in my face and I could see it when he starts in on me. I could see it in his eyes that this dude's like testing me. Like he's trying to see like if, if I'm actually going to hold to like restrain myself and respond in love and just let him step all over me. Like I can see that there was a little bit of 
He was a little bit scared in his eyes. And, and, and also uh, there was this thing where he wasn't sure how it was going to go, but he, he was testing me. And he cussed me up and down and he said some horrible things, yelling at the top of his lungs. And I literally locked my jaw shut from all the things that I wanted to say and all that I wanted to do until he was done. And then he walked off. And so it looked like, like a victory. Like I just, lo- I just loved my hater. And I remember kind of walking in the house thinking like, honey, you're not going to believe like what just happened, but check it out. Like, I, I don't know how it happened, but like the spirit of God must have filled me, restrained me something. Cause I didn't do what I would normally do when someone gets in my, in my face. And I was really pretty proud of myself. But the truth is later, as I reflected on this, I had to be honest about what was actually going on in my heart in that moment. Because even though I, was, I had my jaw locked and I kept my hands to my side and I restrained myself, like inside of me, I murdered that dude about 50 times in 50 different ways. You know what I'm saying? Like I did. Like I had like full disdain for this guy. And the stuff that was coming out of here was like unimaginably bad. Right? Like, like not, not super good. In this instance, like, I, I, I walked away, like, behaviorally speaking, like, thinking, like, wow, I, like, I did pretty good. Like, I did good. Like, I, I, I loved my enemy, right? But, but in my heart and what actually existed inside of me towards these people, like, I, I didn't. I didn't. And, and with Andy and Jen, I, I was conscious of Jesus' teaching on loving your enemy, trying deliberately to be intentional to walk in and fulfill it, and yet failed at doing it before God according to his perfect law of loving your enemy. Because even though I showed them in action, like patience and generosity and kindness and meekness and restraint, I still wanted them to just go away. You know what I mean? Just go away. Like God just moved these people. It was a good thing that I restrained myself physically, okay? We should do that for some other reasons. Uh, We should restrain ourselves physically, outwardly, behaviorally, um, and and it's because, like, we can go to jail if we don't. Like, that's not good, you know? Uh, I could have been sued. I could have been, ended up paying for hospital bills that day. Like, there's good reasons why, uh, there's reasons why it was good, that I restrained myself. So practically, yes, but, but did I fulfill the perfect law of God and truly loving my enemy? No, I didn't. I didn't. Because even though I did the right thing on the outside, I had a full measure of disdain with this dude on the inside. And people, this is what God wants from us above all else. I think if you've been in chapter five with us this whole time, you know that by now. This is what God wants from us. He, he wants our hearts to be right. Not just our behaviors. The source of our behaviors to be right. This is the point of the sermon, right? God wants the source of our actions to be perfect, and they're they're simply not, which brings us to the final verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Like, boom. Like, do do we really need a final nail in our coffin, you know, at the end of the sermon? Apparently we do. There it is. Like, there's the final nail in our coffin. This is what God's law does. I mean, maybe some of you have been holding out on what we've, that what we've been teaching is kind of wrong, kind of extreme, 
uh, maybe been holding out that it's, real, it's really not as bad as we've let on, like, like we're not maybe even really as bad as we've let on. It, it is. It, it just is. Uh, it's every bit as bad as we've imagined and proclaimed. Um, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Like this is the summation of the sermon so far. This is the point. This is what God wants from us and this is what Jesus has been teaching. Perfection. Perfection. And by the way, I do not believe this is just a summary of the love your enemies text that we were in today. Okay? This is another area where I think our, our, our modern day Bibles can, can fall short just like they've chopped other things up. Sometimes maybe, maybe they don't distance other things. Um, I, I, I believe that this is the summary of all of what you and I would call chapter five. I believe he's making a summary statement of everything he's preached up to that point. Now, maybe someone else sees it different. That's fine. That's what I truly believe is going on here. This is a summary of everything that he has taught so far. The Beatitudes, as well as the I says, like all of it. In attitude, he wants us to be perfect. In character, he wants us to be perfect. In action, he wants us to be perfect. In heart, he wants us to be perfect. Be these things at the Beatitudes, as well as don't be these things. Anger, lust, marriage, oaths, retaliation, divorce, all of it. Perfection is the bar. So how'd you guys do? Stupid question. We all know how we did, right? Right? How, how well are you doing? How well are you going to do tomorrow? How well are you going to do next week? How well are you going to do in 10 years with this perfection thing? Or even a thousand, should God give you a thousand years, right? There are two words that summarize all of this. Okay, I've already said one, perfection and inability. Perfection and inability. And I, and I just want to make sure that we all know that this statement Jesus is making here, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. It's not a push forward, like inspiration, you know what I mean, to go do, to go be. It's not an encouragement. It's not a talk, right? It's not good advice. It is a command. It's a command. You must. You must. It is the only way to him. And he's saying, he's saying this is the way, perfection. This is the way. So, so here's the bazillion dollar question. How can you or I ever become perfect as our heavenly father is perfect? How can we ever stand a chance at doing this? How is this even possible? And hopefully as people that know the rest of the story, we can hear another statement from Jesus ringing in our ears right now. One that says, with man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Hopefully we hear that. The way that God has made this impossible thing possible is through the substitution. These are two words that I want you to remember. Substitution and imputation of his son. That's how it's possible. The substitution and imputation of his son. The one preaching this condemnation and this perfection. If you've been tracking with us through this whole section of scripture, I don't... I don't think I need to spell out for you who it is that's actually being described in the Beatitudes, first and foremost, 
as well as the Isaiahs, right? It is the preacher. It is the one who, uh, it is the preacher that is the one who is perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. He's the one that's perfect. It is he who is the one who has passed this law test, the one who has mastered the exam, the one who embodies fully, completely, perfectly all that's been said here by him. The one speaking is the one being described in all of it. Jesus is the one who has accomplished all of these things, and we see his accomplishment of this last one, love your enemies, most obviously by looking around this room right now. Like this is the manifestation, the reality of how God actually loves his enemies is by looking around this room right now. Because you were one and I was one. He hung on the cross, beaten, bloodied, hungry, thirsty, tired, forsaken, abandoned, falsely accused, deserted, hated by all, And what was it he was doing, right? What was it he was doing? What was it he was concerned with? What was it that moved his heart there? You did, and I did. And because of this, we see him pray even, right? With his final breath for those who took it, his persecutors. He's talking about him here. This is what it looks like to love your enemies, that which... He did, not just here, outward, but here in our hearts. This whole time through chapter five, he's been speaking of himself. And since we are unable to live this life perfectly, he did substitute. Since we need perfection to become the children of God, he gave it to us, imputation. That's what those mean. So we have a substitute and we have an imputation, which is a gifting right, from that substitute, which is what allows you and I to take on an identity, a newness of being perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. That's how it works. This is how we become perfect. Second Corinthians 5.21, here's an imputation verse for you. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's imputation. That's substitution and imputation all at the same time. It's exchange. Martin Luther, sorry, no, John Calvin. No, sorry, Martin Luther. We always go back and forth. I attribute everything to Calvin, so Jordan makes fun of me. Uh, I think it is Luther. Uh, he, He coined the phrase like the great exchange. And this is exactly what we're talking about when he says that, is that, is that he's taken this thing, this sin that we have on us, onto himself, so it's gone from here to there, and then he's taken the righteousness that he had and, and, and places it over here, and there's, this, there's a switch, there's an exchange. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. Doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem just, doesn't seem right, that's the gospel. Like that's exactly what's going on here. In other words, Jesus becomes this thing that's foreign to him so that we can become this thing that's foreign to us. One of the many things that makes the Bible so different, so otherworldly and supernatural is that it has layers, right? Like there's layers here. So if I come to chapter five and I read it, 
kind of as we've taught it this time through um, to like with its immediate implications and intentions by Jesus, like he's talking to a bunch of unregenerated people, then we get that law, right? And we all get F's as a result of that. We get an F on the test, on the law test. But once we're born again and we're saved and the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in us and he's making all things new and he's doing works inside of us, we can come back to chapter five of Matthew and read it and know that we get an A plus at everything that we see. Not because we've performed it, but because he's performed it and gifted it to us. So now our identity is not sinner, lawbreaker, but righteous lawkeeper. Because that's what Jesus is. Lord, we thank you for um, even stuff that's been heavy, um, that's been weighty, um, because it ultimately brings life. And I pray that you would take these things um, and, and just articulate them, um, clarify them um, in the minds of, of your children. God, I pray um, that you would be pleased um, with um, the way that we have handled this and the way that we have handled you um, so that life may be granted to people, so that encouragement and blessing and, and worship would flow from our hearts because we don't we don't believe in something that we produced. We, we believe in something only you were able to produce, God, and, and that can only create thanksgiving and gratitude. And, and so um, I, I, I pray that we would be full of that. Um, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his fulfillment of the law on our behalf, in which if it never happened, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be thinking the way we're thinking, doing what we're doing, praising you like we praise you. We thank you for, for making the difference. We thank you for loving enemies that while we were yet against you, sinners, you sent your son to die for us, Lord. And so all, all these things together, I, I, I pray, would just overwhelm us, Lord, with gratitude in your name. Amen.